was contemplating this week and thinking about, there's been a number of last weeks in my life. Now that I'm 50, you know, I'm looking back on the many years of my youth. There are two last weeks that really stuck out to me. One was the last week of seminary. So seminary is supposed to take the average person three years, me, seven. (laughs) After seven years of working through seminary and working in ministry, everything hinged on this one last week because of Hebrew. Hebrew, my entire graduation rested on this one final exam in this one final class. And I got to tell you, that last week of seminary where everything hinged on this one test, my last week was filled with purpose, intentionality, and angst. There was another last week. It was the last week of my service at Cypress Church. Cypress Church was the First church, Gretchen and I joined together after we got married. It was a church where we really grew up as a family. It's the, it's the church that called me on as a children's pastor when wiser people might have questioned that move. It was that church that supported me through seminary. It was that church that really gave me a foundation of ministry is that church where I first experienced the grace of God. You know, church has that ability. We talk a lot about the grace of God. We pray and sing a lot about the grace of God, but have you experienced it from his body, from his people, when they should have shunned you and instead they embraced you and restored you and renewed you? Cypress Church was the first place I experienced that. And then Gretchen and I were going to move here with our family, and I had one week to wrap up relationships, one week to hand off ministry responsibilities, and that week felt like I just had a few hours to get everything done that I hadn't been able to do in the years before. Last weeks have this part of them that we just, those last weeks are filled with purpose, intentionality, power. And if we're honest about it, those last weeks are emotional and they're personal. I think the same is true for Jesus last week. And we talk a lot about the last week of Jesus. We call it Passion Week because of the emotion that was in the midst of it. Some call it Holy Week because of what it accomplished. But I'd like to ask you to join me for a number of weeks as we go through the last days of Jesus' ministry. Because I think you'll see something that's more than just passion. I think you'll see something that's more than just holiness. I think you'll see something that's purposeful, it's planned. It's intentional and it's personal for you and for me. So you have a moment, will you uh, join me in the book of Mark? The book of Mark, it's the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark. 
And we're going to enter into the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry before his death, before his resurrection, the last week that kind of led up to all of that. And you have to know that, you know, Jesus had been ministering to this point about three years, and, and he developed quite a following, and who could blame them? I mean, Jesus was known for the way he taught. He taught with power and authority that no one else was capable of doing. It was, if, it was as if Jesus wrote these words himself. Jesus ministered with power. He could feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. He could help the lame to walk, the blind to see. He could even raise from the dead. But perhaps his most influential gift his ability was his compassion. See, someone who could teach with that authority and minister with such power, you would expect them to be arrogant. You would expect them to lord it over people and put them under his thumb, not Jesus. Jesus had this compassion. He would seem to flock towards the broken. He would dine and eat with the sinners. He would transform people that everyone else, everyone else gave up on him, not Jesus. And Jesus would even say he came for the broken. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the righteous. You had all that together. Jesus' authority, his power, his compassion. It's no wonder thousands of people, thousands of people flocked to him. And then everything started to change. And Jesus said this, said this in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. He said, from there they went out, began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But look at this. They did not understand the statement. They were afraid to ask. Oh, geez, I don't know what that means, but I don't want to know. Chapter later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus would say it again. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. He continued, said, But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It was that somber thought, it was that misunderstood truth that set the context of foundation for the last week of Jesus' life. Again, if you haven't already, if I haven't convinced you of it, join me in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11. While you're turning there, I'm going to make a little, take a little commercial break and talk about our sermon guides. Our sermon guides, if you're new, every sermon series, Pastor Jeff, our discipleship pastor, writes a guide. Every sermon series, our office staff and volunteers prepare these guides for you, primarily for two reasons. Number one, we want to give a place for you to take notes, to journal, 
if you're that type of person, what God has exposed to you and the commitments that you've made to him. I want to give you space so that you can remember what God's doing in your life. But we also every week have questions in these sermon guides so that you have the opportunity and, and our hope is that you'll allow God to, the truth of God to wash over your life more than just for an hour on Sunday. But you'll take time throughout the week to continue to ruminate and work through and talk through what God is exposing to your life. There's a number of questions you can go through on your own. You can do a work Bible study, something in schools. You, could, uh, you can do them in your small group, or perhaps you can join Pastor Jeff and I Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, right in here as we go through those questions together. But our hope is that what happens on Sunday morning is just the beginning of what God does in your life Monday through Saturday. And we have three formats for you. First, we have the good old-fashioned spiral-bound book that we print out to you, uh, for you. And we had them available as you left last week. We had them available for you as you walked in this week. But I've been with you long enough, and I know there's some of you that are just like, oh, shoot, I forgot to grab my sermon book. And so the first week of every sermon series, we have our good-looking leaders and ushers here ready to hand-deliver one to you. And so if you're rethinking your desire to have one, there you go. Thank you for starting that off. And the pastor's wife always, every, every sermon series, lovely lady in the front row. If you would like one of these books, just raise your hand and someone will bring them to you. And some over here, uh, Mark, to your right as well. But you might be saying, Brian, I don't want to carry something else around with me. That's okay. We have digital options for you as well. If you go to the website and look for the sermon series study guide, uh, you can download the entire PDF onto your phone, onto your tablet, on whatever other device you know how to use. You can download that uh, and share it with your friends. Or you might be saying, Brian, that seems like a lot of work. Can you just spoon feed it to me every week? Yes, we can. <laughs> download the Chino Valley Community Church app. And every week, just look at the sermon tab down at the bottom and look for the sermon series in every week. You'll have the sermon notes, you'll have the questions given to you every week. And if you happen to miss one of the sermons, that will be placed on the app as well every week. Three options for you. And again, we give them to you in these options because we really want this to be a resource for you. Because we believe that the Word of God is powerful, that it, that it convicts, that it teaches, that it steers, that it directs. That's our hope and that's our desire for you. And, and now that we got all that out of the way, let's begin our text. Mark chapter 11. And it begins with the triumphal entry. Oh, Jesus begins to enter into Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11. First thing you want, and Mark wants us to understand three truths and how this whole week started in a triumphal entry. And the first thing he wants us to see is that it was prepared. The triumphal entry, first thing he wants you to understand is it was prepared long beforehand. This was not just something Jesus is doing, shooting from the hip. This isn't something he's making up as he goes. This was planned, and we begin to see it. Acts chapter 11, verse 1 says this, as they approached Jerusalem, and we're just going to hit pause there. Because there's already something important I need you to understand. That term, they, you might go, well, who's that, Brian? 
Who's the they? Well, there's a lot of people right now in Jerusalem. It's Passover. And if you don't know much about Passover, I want to draw your attention to the intro that Jeff wrote this week on the different feasts and celebrations of the church. It's in the intro section in those sermon guides. But let me give you a little synopsis. Every year, God would require his people to go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate Passover. That celebration where they remember God is their deliverer. As God delivered them from the slavery of Egypt in miraculous and powerful ways and that God is still their deliverer today. Every year, it's estimated that over two million Jews would come to Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb in celebration of God as their deliverer. So during this season, Jesus is going into an already packed Jerusalem, but that they doesn't necessarily talk about the two million plus people already in Jerusalem. It's talking about the people following him. Jesus had healed two blind men on his way to Jerusalem. He had already ministered to Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man. I'm not going to sing the whole thing. (laughs) Zacchaeus was one of the most despised men in his neighborhood. And Jesus transformed his life right there. Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead. And people were flocking to Jesus and this crowd of people were following him in to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem for Passover. So there's not only a huge crowd in front of Jesus, there's a huge crowd behind Jesus. And as they approach Jerusalem, here we go, at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Here's what Jesus said. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied. Colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here. And you might think, what? I mean, you gotta know, Jesus walked everywhere. Fancy people rode horses. Famous people rode donkeys, not Jesus. He didn't Uber anywhere. He wasn't carried. He walked. The only time Jesus didn't walk was when they traveled over a sea, and even then sometimes he walked. (laughs) Jesus walked everywhere, and all of a sudden Jesus decides he wants to ride? Why all of a sudden is Jesus tired and needing to ride? Well, here's some things you need to understand about donkeys. See, in our day, donkeys are just humble beasts of burden. They're just animals to do things that horses are too good to do. But not in their day. See, donkeys were symbolic of something, of royalty. You know that King David rode a donkey? You know that? King David rode a donkey, and in fact, I guess everybody knew that because when King Solomon, his son, was going to be coronated as king, he rode up on David's donkey. I mean, the Bible wanted us to know that. And many people believe one of the reasons Jesus wanted to ride a donkey is so that people would understand he is their king. King David rode a donkey, King Solomon rode a donkey. 
Later kings would be coronated on a donkey. So Jesus is now coming in on a donkey. There's also another reason. The Gospel of Matthew kind of shares it with us. Put your thumb in Mark. Flip over to the first book of the New Testament. First, one book to the left. Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. The Gospel of Matthew is another gospel. This is Matthew's perspective. This is Matthew's viewpoint of this exact same period of time, right? Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, verse 5. Look at Matthew's perspective. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you say, The Lord is need of them. And immediately he will send them. Verse 4. This took place. Why? What's the big deal, Brian? This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, surprise, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. From the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, roughly 500 years before the first day of the last week of Jesus' life, Zechariah said he'd ride in on a donkey. To be more specific, on the colt of a donkey. The way Jesus began his first week, it was symbolic. It was prophetic. But it had some powerful flair to it as well. Remember, Jesus says, hey, we're back in now the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said, hey, go grab that donkey. I mean, can you imagine those disciples? Is that your donkey, Jesus? No, it's not mine. But I know what's over there. Just go grab it. If the owner says, hey, why are you taking my donkey? Just say, yeah, Jesus needs it. And they're going to be okay with it. That's exactly how it went. Look what happened. So, verse 4. Mark chapter 11, verse 4. They went away, found a colt, tied at the door. Just like Jesus said, outside the street. They untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission, just as Jesus had said. Man, the way Jesus is starting this ministry is symbolic, it's prophetic, it's powerful. We begin to get this idea that God had all this planned more than roughly 500 years ahead of time. If this is not something that Jesus is just doing, shooting from the hip, this isn't something he's making up as he goes. Like this is something that God has intentionally pieced and built together. That God has planned this out. First thing you need to understand, this last week, this first day of the last week, it was prepared, handcrafted by God. It got me to question this week. If God can plan out everything to the detail like this, why do I struggle with trusting God with his plans for me? If we're sitting here looking at the way that God orchestrated everything for the last week of Jesus, why do we worry about God's ability to orchestrate everything for his glory and our growth? I mean, that's what the Bible says. 
If God could plan all of this out for Jesus, why do we doubt God's plan in our time? God says he will work everything together for his glory and our growth, so why do we doubt it when hard times come? God says that he allows governments that they answer to him, that he holds everything in the palm of his hands. So why do we feel such angst every two years during election season? As if our vote somehow determines God's direction. Now, don't get me wrong. I think our vote has power on earth. But that's not what we're about. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Man, our first desire is not our kingdom. Our first desire is his. God says that he, he said, I'm going to handle judgment. God says, I'm going to handle all vengeance. So why do we doubt God's ability to handle it? First question that I had to work through in my heart, maybe for you as well. Man, if we see such design in the last week of Jesus, why do we question and doubt God's design for us? You know, I keep hearing people say, Brian, these are the last days, these are the last days, these are the last days. Okay, even if they are, even more so if God specializes in last days, why do we question his control today? Story's not over. First thing we can learn from the triumphal entry from the first day of the last week. Number one, it was prepared. But after all this preparation, after all of this work, after everything that Jesus has done, second thing you need to understand, it was misunderstood. The first day of the last week was misunderstood. Look what happened, verse 7. After they bring the colt, they brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it. Jesus sat on it, verse 8, and many spread their coats in the road. Others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those went in front, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Let's hit pause again. Jesus gets on the colts and all of a sudden everyone just starts jumping to action. Some people spread their coats down on the ground in front of him. It's an old and ancient custom that showed submission they're meaning to communicate that they're beneath the person walking or riding on them. Hey, Jesus, you're in charge of us. You're our king. Ride on us. Walk on us. You're superior to us. It's this ancient custom of submission. Spread leafy branches, palm branches, signify joy in their celebration of being delivered. And as they're waving them, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, that term, Hosanna, means save now, deliver now. And they began to quote Psalm 118, a messianic psalm about the deliverance of the Messiah. Listen, these people recognize that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. They just misunderstood his plan. 
They recognized who Jesus was. I want to make sure you capture this. They recognized who Jesus was. I mean, who else could do all of the things he did? They recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They just misunderstood his plan. Hey, Jesus, you're our authority. Walk on us. As long as you're doing what we want you to do. Hey, Jesus, deliver us. We're excited about what you're going to do. Deliver us as long as you deliver us from what we want deliverance from. God, save us. Save us now from them, not from this. On Passover, when millions of Jews were walking up to Jerusalem in preparation to sacrifice a lamb to God in celebration of God's deliverance of them, they missed it. Jesus rode up that day to signify that he was the Lamb of God. He told them so. We're going to Jerusalem for me to be the Lamb of God, sacrificed so that you may have deliverance from sin. And they misunderstood. Let me give you another perspective of that. Now we're going to flip to another gospel, the gospel of John, John chapter 12. Two books to the right. You're going to go through Luke. You're going to find the Gospel of John, the fourth of four Gospels. John chapter 12, verse 12. Again, you have another perspective of that same first day of the same last week. This is John's perspective now. John chapter 12, verse 12, look what it says. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he, see who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey. Verse 16, look at this. Ever recognized this before? Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first. His disciples didn't even get it. But when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things were written of him, that they had done these things to him. Like everything's planned, everything's prepared. God orchestrates this roughly 500 years ahead of time. And Jesus is walking it in perfect clarity for everyone to understand. Here's the problem. Everybody missed it. Even the disciples misunderstood. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't know his plan. They knew Jesus was the Messiah but they misunderstood what he was about. And I thought to myself, oof, could the same be true of us? Do you think it's possible that we could spend time in church every week learning about Jesus, singing about Jesus, praying to Jesus, knowing who he is? but misunderstanding his plan for our lives. 
Man, I think there's people that welcome Jesus into their life so they can go to heaven for all eternity. But they don't know that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came so that we would have life here, that he could transform our lives here, that he could lead us into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Man, I think there's people who welcome Jesus into their life completely unaware of what he wants to do. I think there's people that welcome Jesus in their home. They go to Hobby Lobby and buy all those fancy signs, place them all over their home, expecting that now their family will be perfect, that their home will be blessed, and that their life will be easy peasy. Unaware, when you invite Jesus into your home, he wants to set your standards. He wants to be your director, he wants to be your savior and your king. He's not there to bless you with comforts. He's here to, he is there to bless you with communion with God. I think there's people that even welcome Jesus into our country. Jesus, come. Come into our country. Why? Heal our land. Give us cheaper gas. Fuller shelves. Come for your life. Man, I got to tell you, if Jesus came and entered our land, I'm not sure he'd be worried about gas prices. I think he'd be worried about broken lives, lost people. Man, I just, I was thinking in my life, oh my gosh. With all of my training and all my preaching, do I live my life knowing who Jesus is but misunderstanding why he came. How about you? One last thing I want to share with you about this first day of the last week. First thing, Mark wants to make sure we know it was prepared long beforehand. Man, this is something that God orchestrated, and I hope you see it. This is something God orchestrated. This is something God planned. Number two, this is something that our people misunderstood. Jesus gave us all the answers. God gave us the answers 500 years ahead of time, and yet we still misunderstood it. We love to look at the disciples and just roll our eyes. Oh my gosh, it's so as clear as day. How can you miss it? And yet, here we are. Still misunderstanding the plan and purpose of God. It was prepared... It was misunderstood. Here's the third thing you got to know about that first day of the last week. It was just the beginning. Look what happened. After all that pomp and circumstance, right? He hops on a donkey just like David, just like Solomon, just like Jehu. I mean, it was great. Everyone's putting their coats down, waving palm branches. Hey, the Messiah's rolling into Jerusalem. Woo, woo. Everyone is on fire. Jesus finally gets in Jerusalem. Look at what happens. Finally, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple. After looking around at everything, he went home. That's the first day. Talk about anticlimactic, right? After all that celebration, he doesn't go to the temple or he doesn't go to the palace. 
He doesn't go shopping. He doesn't go eat lunch. There's not a big meal. He goes to the temple, looks around and leaves. And people are like, what? What's the point of that? What's Jesus doing? What's he doing on that first day? You know what I think? I think he's casing the joint. I think he went there to evaluate it. All right, Messiah came. I'm here. Let's go look at church. Let's look at your worship. Let's look at your lives. He went to the temple, observed everything. Even the stuff that people thought they were hiding from God, Jesus saw it. He looked, evaluated. See, man looks at the exterior, not Jesus. Jesus looks at a man's soul. He entered Jerusalem, came to the temple, looked around at everything. And then he left since it was already late. And you just have this feeling that something's brewing. And that's my cliffhanger for next week. Don't read ahead. <laughs> but that reminded me of something. Something that we saw or see in the prophet Malachi, chapter 3. Look up Malachi, an Old Testament prophet. By the way, people say, hey, Brian, what do we do? You always want to know what we're doing next. We're going to go through the prophet Malachi after Easter together. Powerful. Great book, great book. You're going to love it. But... We'll jump ahead. Malachi 3, look at what Malachi said. Behold, surprise. I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek. The Lord that you're wanting to come. He will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He keeps going. Behold, surprise. He's coming, says the Lord. Big biblical butt right there. Hey, you want Jesus? Jesus is coming. But who can endure that day? Hey, Jesus is going to come and look at you and look at your heart and look at your life and who can stand? Who can stand up against the judgment of Jesus? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purify and purifier of silver. Hey, you know how you purify silver? You don't polish it. You burn it. You melt it. You scoop off all the junk. And you let it harden again. Then you melt it again. You wait for all the junk to float to the top and you scoop it off again. And Jesus comes. He's going to be like a smelter, purifier of silver. And that's what he's going to do to the sons of Levi, to his people. He'll purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver so they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That term purify, cleanse us, make us pure, restore us to full luster. Man, restore your broken life to full beauty. Everything back to the way that it was supposed to be. 
Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. He came to be our sacrificial lamb. He came to purify us and restore us back to full luster. Complete communion with God. So to close up, I have two questions for you. Number one, have you received the gift that Jesus came to give? I'm not asking, do you believe in Jesus? As we can see, plenty of people believed in Jesus. They laid down their coats and waved their palm branches. Plenty of people knew who he was. James tells us demons know who he is. They just don't submit. Have you received the gift of salvation? Have you allowed Jesus to ride into your life, not on a stallion, not with all the pomp and circumstance of government and the Roman leaders and all of that fancy schmancy stuff? No, no, Jesus comes in on a donkey. He wants to serve you. He wants to save you. He wants to minister to your life. He knows the one thing you need that no one else can give you. And Jesus is riding in on a donkey ready to minister to you. If you know who Jesus is, but you've never accepted his payment for your sin, for your failure, why not today, first day? You have a great rest of the last week. Maybe you can get this out of the way early. Yeah, the rest of the days are going to be cake. First question, have you received the free gift of God? If you haven't, maybe today, and I'll, I'll help you do that in just a minute. But for the rest of us, you say, no, 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 Brian, I've received the gift of salvation. Okay, fantastic. Have you forgotten about why he brought it? Have you misunderstood have you forgotten why Jesus came? See, Jesus didn't come to lift you up so you could have a blessed life. Jesus came to restore you to communion with God and so that you can be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the globe. If you're like, Brian, I have received salvation, then have you forgotten why you're still here? You're a priest of the living God an emissary of the gospel, an example of the power of God in your life. Your perfection is not a result of your work. All of your health, all of your wealth, all that you have has been handed to you by a generous God so that you can be a steward and use it for his glory. Regardless, whether you need to receive it for the first time this morning or whether you need to remember the purpose of why Jesus came. Let's go to him together right now. Jesus is a church. We're here this morning because we are remembering your glory, your goodness, your power. God, we confess to you, it's so easy to get distracted throughout the week with the busyness of life, with the worries of our families, with our health struggles, our financial struggles, our, our communal struggles, our issues of culture. And the, Oh God, it's just so hard to remain focused on you. So God, we're grateful for your word that allows us an hour. God, we can just come through and clarify for us. 
So God, I pray for the majority of people here, God, who have already given their lives to you. They have already received salvation. They are here because they know that they are saved and united with you. They no longer have guilt and shame and fear of your judgment. But God, we confess to you, we forget about your purposes. So God, remind us, restore us, renew us, revive us. God, that we might be more than just people saved from our sins, but God, we might be people who are sanctified, transform the image of our, of our Savior, a reflection of your glory and an influencer of hearts. God, protect us from worrying about and being about things that you're not worried about and that you're not being about. And help us to be about what you are. Help us remember why you even came. So we can be about that too. God, for those few people watching online, for those few people here in service, who have yet to just receive your mercy, God, they know who Jesus is, but they've just never really submitted their life to him and allowed them, allowed him to accomplish his will in their lives. God, I pray that you open their eyes and allow them to see Jesus as I do. God, that of their own free will, that they will reach out to him. And pray for forgiveness. And lift their burdens, their failures their guilt, their shame. And Jesus, I ask you to respond just as you've promised. That you'd forgive them their failures, that you'd declare them righteous. And Jesus, give them a peace that's beyond human comprehension as you've promised. And when we just bring all of our failures before you, God, guard their hearts and their minds. And Jesus, I pray, give them your spirit. It will lead them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. It will seal their life in a relationship with God and transform them to be a reflection of your glory. God, will you accomplish all of that right now in their life, in Jesus' name. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, it's the first week of the month. And I love that this fell on the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. The day that he came to the temple, cased it in preparation to purify his people. And communion is the time that we remember that. And that we experience that once again. It's something Jesus instituted the last summer supper. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of my sacrifice. See, Jesus didn't see heaven as something to be held on to. He, he let it go so he could take on the form of his own creation and die for us and not just die any death. Death on the cross, the most horrific and gruesome and humiliating form of death known to man at that time. In confidence 
that Jesus would do a work, that God would lift his name above all names, that at the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in submission or in rebellion, but everyone will know who he is. And then Jesus took the cup, said this is the new covenant, new promise, poured out in my blood for you. She said, this is my guarantee. As you drink it, it's a reminder that Jesus has cleansed you of your sin, that you are no longer a weakened vessel of sin, impotent in this world. No, 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 you are, you are transformed in the image of the Savior. You are freed from your guilt and shame, and you are restored as an instrument of God. That's communion. That's what we remember, and that's what we celebrate now. If you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, either for the first time just now, or remembered for the hundredth time today. The ushers will dismiss you. You come up and grab, grab the elements, take them back to your seat. Then when everyone has them, we'll take them as a family together.